Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Joseph Ellis, the author of The Quartet. Joseph Ellis, you've written a lot of books about the Revolutionary War era and the founding of the U.S. What is it that keeps bringing you back to that particular part of history? Well, that's the big bang in American history. It's the explosion that radiates out into the 19th and 20th and now 21st century. It's the place where we discovered our identity as a people and a nation and created the institutions, the republic, that continues to exist and is the oldest enduring republic in world history. So it's the same reason when they asked Willie Sutton why he robs banks. <laughs> and Willie said, because that's where they keep the money. And this is where they keep the ideas and the values that uh, still resonate for us. And so I'm, I'm admittedly, uh, I've written about some other stuff earlier in my career, but I've become pretty obsessed with this period. And I guess, um, I guess I would say you can never know enough about these people. And uh, I guess there's a related reason, namely that I think we've reached a point in our evolution as, as a nation when we can see these people as human beings, not as statues or icons or superheroes, but as flawed, imperfect creatures, much like us. And that indeed, if they're really perfect, why in heaven's name would we be interested in them? Because we have nothing to learn from them. Um, so, um, and the, this happens to be a moment in time when these vast editions of the papers of the founders are reaching fruition. So that there's, they're probably the most fully recorded political elite in world history. So there's an awful lot of stuff that you can read and use. And so, for all those reasons, I do seem to be uh, stuck on hold there, and um, and this current book uh, is in line with what I've been doing for the last 30 years. Is the founding taught differently now than when, say, when you were an undergraduate student? I mean, mm. how, do, how was the founding perceived back then, and how has it changed? Um, back then, there was still the glimmer, uh, the residue of a kind of um, piety towards the founders and a kind of the presumption that they were somehow greater than uh, life. Um, but right alongside it was a tradition that had been established in the first half of the 20th century. It's called the Progressive School of History or the Beardian after James Beard, in which um, the founders were regarded as uh, uh, people who weren't heroes, quite the opposite. It's almost like a reverse of the, of the image. Um, it's like a single cartoon. One makes them all good and the other makes them look all bad. Um, 
in truth, over the last 30 or 40 years, most members of the historical profession have said, well, we already know about the political history of America. Let's move on and talk about things that haven't been studied, namely uh, ordinary citizens, women, <clears throat> Native Americans, African Americans. And their, their primary goal is to recover the experience of these groups and let us understand who they were, like a midwife on the main frontier. Um, they're not interested in what those people did that created institutions that continue to exist. That's what I'm interested in. And so um, I do dead white males and, um, and, uh, and try to do them in such a way that they <clears throat> become human beings, not faces on Mount Rushmore. Um, and uh, I, I think that there's an illusion on the part of some historians that most students already know the story. Well, if you ever taught an undergraduate history class, you would know that that is indeed an illusion. And, um, and some people don't know the difference between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I mean, Ronald Reagan used to confuse them about that sometimes. Um, uh, Chairman, uh, Speaker Boehner uses uh, we the people when he's talking about the Declaration, and that's not the Declaration. Um, but there's an enormous amount of historical illiteracy out there. And so trying to understand how we got from independence to the present is, and how we created the Constitution is, um, I mean, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. Are any of the founders, for all the studying you've done of them, any of them you still hold in awe? No, not awe. There are people that I, I feel more I feel more affection towards um, Adams, John Adams, because he's the vainest and the most honest of them all. And uh, he's the one you'd like to have a beer with, maybe a Sam Adams beer. And um, um, <clears throat> there's one I discovered in doing this book that I think is going to ascend in the, into the first rank of the pantheon, if you will, or on the top of Mount Olympus, because his papers have been not been published, they've been sort of hoarded at Columbia for 40 or 50 years, and as they come out now, they just started to come out. The person I'm talking about is John Jay. Uh, most people wouldn't think of him as in the same categories, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Hamilton, Franklin, and those people, sort of the, the, the top six or seven or the magnificent seven or whatever it is. Uh, I think he's going to start being talked about in that way. He's got a criminal justice college named after him in New York, but that's because he was the first chief justice. Um, but he was much more than that, and I think his correspondence with uh, his wife, uh, Sarah, is pretty close to as good, and that's saying a lot, as the correspondence with Abigail and John. So um, I think in terms of shifting values. Uh, Adams has gone up over the last 20 or 30 years in, in appearance and frame, and um, Jefferson has gone a bit down. Anytime you look through America, through the window of race and slavery, Jefferson's uh, reputation is going to suffer. Do you think they each deserve to have their reputations go in those directions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, I'm, you know, we're not going to tear down the Jefferson Memorial and take his face off of Mount Rushmore or anything like that. Um, but I think it's a way of us, history is an argument without end. 
and that they should be part of that argument, and they shouldn't be embalmed. Um, they didn't want that. They wanted to be remembered, but not embalmed. And uh, but that um, oh, you know, like let's take them all. You know, like you've got Lincoln, and you've got Jefferson, and now you've got Martin Luther King. Well, let's say that Jefferson has something to learn from Martin Luther King. Jefferson's core ideas get translated by Lincoln to mean no slavery and get then translated again by, by King to mean no segregation. Would Jefferson have understood all that? I think he would have understood the slavery part. I'm not sure whether he would have been able to understand the, the, the integration part. But that it, on the mall we now have a conversation going that is the one that Americans can, ought to continue to have. And, um, in, and you go up and you go down in, in those things. Um, and right now Jefferson's, he's not down, but he's, he's not in the place he was before. For all the studying you've done, what, what do you think now of George Washington? Washington remains the, the greatest. He's not necessarily the person you want to talk to. He's, he doesn't say anything. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I'm, he is the foundingness father of them all. And he's the leading figure in both American foundings, the winning of independence and the creation of the new nation and the Constitution. He's president of the Constitutional Convention and the first president who actually implements the, the values of the Constitution. Um, uh, there's not going to be any scandals about him. There's not going to be a uh, Sally Hemings in his, uh, in his uh, legacy. Um, but, uh, and the more you look at him, the more impressive he becomes. Um, so uh, he stays there pretty much to, near the top. You, you write about him, conspicuous aloofness came so naturally to Washington that it is often difficult to know when he was acting and when he was just being himself. Yeah, that's, uh, I like that line. Do you like that line? <laughs> and um, I wrote a book on him called His Excellency. So I've read all the Washington papers. You were on this program for that And book. I was on this program to talk about that. And um, uh, so that at some point in his life, during the war, early in the war, Washington went from being a man to being a monument. And after that time, almost everything he says and does and writes is being is being written or said with an audience in mind, the immediate audience, and then even us, posterity. So he's posing, um, and it's very difficult then to know. And so when you get back to the early Washington, before he knows all the fame that's going to happen to him, his letters are much more revealing and. In fact, he goes back twice in 1786 and 1797 to go edit his correspondence and airbrush out the, the more uh, conspicuously adolescent, at times juvenile, at times very ambitious character back there. Um, but um, Washington not only it remains the iconic figure and the top, at the top of, <clears throat> I mean, see, if you asked all the great founders, like, Let's say Benjamin Franklin's the wisest in this city. That's good to know. Um, Hamilton's probably the most brilliant. Would have got the highest grades on the LSAT. Um, Jefferson's the most intellectually sophisticated and, and has broader range. 
Madison is the most politically agile. If God were in the details, Madison would be there to greet him upon arrival. And um, who's the, uh, the one I'm not mentioning? Jefferson, Adams, Hamilton, Madison, Franklin. Okay. But if you ask all of them, who is the greatest? They would all say the same thing, Washington. And if you say why, the one word answer is judgment. Judgment. There are four or five things in Washington's life where he has to make a judgment. And if he doesn't make the right judgment, American history goes off in another direction. And recovering the difficult, and he all, like all the big things in our lives, we have to make decisions before we have enough evidence to know what the right decision is, right? Like who you're going to marry, you know? And, um, and uh, he always makes the right decision. Now, he doesn't make every decision right. I mean, you know, he's, but um, his, his, if, in order to appreciate the thoughtfulness and the judgment quality, you have to almost understand the context in which he's making it. A lot of Americans don't do that. And, but he stands up. He stand, I mean, he, he survives um, all scrutiny, I think. A lot of your book covers the, the portion of the country that was governed by the Articles of Confederation and the turmoil that led to the Constitution. Was, was George Washington paying attention then? I mean, from the time he resigned from the Army and went down to Mount Vernon, was he still active politically and aware of what was going on? Yeah, he retires from office in 1783. He goes down to Annapolis to surrender his sword in a great sort of Cincinnatus ceremony. It's interesting, there wasn't even a sufficient quorum in the, convent, in the Articles Congress to, it, literally it was illegal what he did, because they, but they said, we'll fake it and we'll have a quorum here. Um, he cares a lot about what's going to happen after he leaves, obviously. His own legacy is at stake. And so he's very concerned about the fact that the government under the Articles, it turns out, really isn't a government. It can't function. It's not supposed to be a government. It's supposed to be a kind of League of Nations that meets twice a year to sort of decide common interest issues, but it doesn't have any real power. The states remain central and that things are going badly. We're running a $40 million deficit and we can't pay it back and therefore we're not only the first large republic, but we're the first banana republic. Did the states at the time think of themselves as 13 independent countries? Yes. Yes, that's what's hard to understand. Like when in the convention for ratification, uh, Patrick Henry says, well, like, suppose we pass this Constitution and the representatives from Virginia in the Senate and in the House all vote against a tax, and then the tax passes. Then we're being taxed without our consent. See? And like they think of Massachusetts as a, as a foreign country. Um, yeah, you do quote Patrick Henry as saying he did not be believe there was such thing as the American people, only Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Englanders, or South Carolina. That's right. He's typical, okay? Because you've got to remember here uh, that the average American is born, lives out his or her life, and dies within like a 30-mile radius. And there's no cell phones. <laughs> there's not even roads in them many places. And so one's allegiances tend to be local and one's perception of political representation seems to be, well, 
I want somebody to represent me who is a neighbor, who understands my interests. And somebody far away can't possibly do that. Um, but let me go back to the question you began with. Washington in the early 1780s is committed to, re to remaining under his vine and fig trees at Mount Vernon. He does not want to leave Mount Vernon. Why? Well, he's already said to the world, I have given up my power and I'm stepping aside and Cincinnatus cannot come back. Now you quote him as saying, my day is done. That's the other thing in another way, namely, there's a letter to uh, Lafayette. At Lafayette's made a visit. He loves Lafayette. Lafayette's like his second son. And he writes Lafayette just after he's left and says, you know, this is probably the last time we will have seen each other. And he said that I feel myself going down the stream of life. Though I am of an excellent condition, physical, I am of short-lived family. No male member of the Washington clan lived past their 50s. He's 52, and he says um, the hourglass is turned. I'm closer to the end than the beginning, but I shall not regret. I have had my day. He thinks it's over. He thinks he's achieved what he, the destiny wanted him to achieve in winning the war and American independence and that the next chapter has to be led by somebody else. And so there are deep psychological reasons as well as political reasons why he wants to stay put. And I would say eventually when he gets elected president, no president in American history did not want to be president more than George Washington. Sometimes when I'm watching the news now and you know we have all the candidates on the Republican side announcing these days, and I don't know how many there's going to end up being, but all of them say some version of, here are the reasons why I am the most qualified to be president of the United States. In Washington's mind and in Washington's world, anybody that said that was automatically disqualified. If you thought you were, you, if you were that ambitious, we don't want you. Um, Washington would never run for office in this kind of political climate. Neither would any of the other founders, Jefferson, Adams, Madison. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a different universe, a different world. Um, and I know we can't turn the clock back, but sometimes when I see some of these people, I think, oh, I wish to God we were back in the late 18th century. Was there somebody in particular who persuaded him to come back and get involved with the Constitutional Convention? There's three people that form to lobby him. The first person to lobby him is Jay. Jay is currently, at that time, serving as uh, superintendent of foreign policy for the, he's supposed to be secretary of state for the Confederation Congress, but the problem is that each state has its own foreign policy. The other uh, person that writes him is Madison and Hamilton. And, they, and then one of his friends from the war, Knox, Henry Knox, his old artillery officer. So four guys really court him because if the Constitutional Convention is to succeed, mean, mean become legitimate, it, it needs Washington. Without Washington, it's not going to work. With Washington, all of a sudden, it becomes legitimate. 
and so it's a it's a three or four month process and then once they get them pretty well lean in yes they start to give them a kind of political education you know like here's the stuff you need to read washington knows what he wants he in a large scale he wants to transform the articles into a, a more a, a government where power ships from the states to the federal level he knows that but then there's all kinds of other issues like should it be a bicameral legislature what should be the power of the courts um, that, that they know is going to argue, these are issues that he should be somewhat familiar with. So they give him like a cram course. And um, Madison, who probably knows more about the political issues than anybody else, is the chief contributor in this regard. Did, uh, did Washington, once the Constitutional Convention started, did Washington participate in any way? I mean, it's usually said that he didn't say anything from the podium, but was he kind of working behind the scenes at all? No. no. Well, He's living in the home of uh, the wealthiest guy in, the, in America named Robert Morris, who's a member of the uh, Pennsylvania delegation. Uh, and Morris is, a, is an interesting character. He's been vilified by some historians, but he's really not that, he's not a robber baron or anything like that. And um, give you a, a, you, this, an aside, if I may, like when the British Army gets itself trapped in Yorktown, uh, and it so happens the French fleet has come up from the Caribbean, which is just luck. And so if we can get the American and French army down there and trap them, we got them. But we can't get them down because we don't have the money. We don't have the money to carry the troops down on ships. And Robert Morris sits down and says, how much do you need? He writes a personal check for $684,000 to cover it. Okay. So that's the kind of guy he is. Anyway, Washington stays with him, and we don't know what conversations went on there and, and, uh, and in the taverns. We know something, but Washington remains reasonably silent. Um, he, is, he, 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 he establishes a very strict order that precludes any communication with any uh, outsider during the time that this convention is going on. And when someone leaves some, some of the record on the table, he calls attention to that and says, whoever did this, after we're finished, come pick this up and then I'll do it. On the last day of the convention, just to get himself on the record, he does say one substantive thing. He says, we currently agree that the congressional district should be 40,000 voters. I think we should reduce its size to 30,000. So they all say, oh, if you want to do that, we'll do that. <laughs> and so they do that. But otherwise, his import, he is indispensable, but he doesn't make much of a substantive contribution at all. His, his role is symbolic. How did the Constitutional Convention come about in the first place? I mean, whose idea was it, and was it legal what they did? Good questions. Like, the person who raises the question and calls and requests a calling of the convention is Hamilton. This is why I'm saying this term, the quartet, works. It, does, it might seem impossible to believe, but four guys are the leaders. And they are, again? They are Hamilton, Madison, um, Jay, and Washington. I'm not saying they did everything, and I'm not saying that they are superheroes by any stretch. I've made a 30-year career of not wanting to believe in superheroes. But they take the lead. And in this one instance, there is this convention called in Annapolis, called the Annapolis Convention, which is designed to just discuss interstate commerce. 
and because um, there's no cooperation. New Jersey, I mean, New York is charging tariffs against New Jersey and da 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 da. And so they call this convention and only five states show up. It's a total failure. But Hamilton comes from New York and Madison comes from Virginia. And Hamilton says, look, let's use this failure to, to call for a more general convention. Now, this is like some journeyman boxer gets knocked out and now threatens to, to challenge the champion of the, United, uh, the heavyweight champion of the world. It's like audacious that he does this. But what happens in between the Annapolis Convention and uh, May of, 70, of 87 is, is something called Shays Rebellion. And that creates unease in the country. It's over-interpreted. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, the country's going to fall into anarchy. That's really over Nothing that bad is going to happen. And they tend to exaggerate it a bit, though Madison actually believes his own exaggerations. He thinks that the British inspired this, that the British are looking to retake New England after the war, all kinds of things. But it creates a more, it's a triggering event so that earlier proposals for a convention fell silent. They never make, make it to the floor of the Congress, of the Confederation. This time, Madison, Hamilton proposed it and they say, oh, okay. We will recognize the need for a convention charged to revise the current government under the Articles of Confederation. Not to replace them, but to revise them. Washington, Madison, Hamilton say, and Jay say, the only reason to meet is to replace them. To revise them is half a loaf and that's worth nothing. You've got to go all the way or nothing here. So they're prepared once they gather to set the agenda for in a way that is technically illegal. They're not supposed to do that. They're violating their mandate. But they're already agreed beforehand that that's what they're going to do. Was anyone in the Congress of the Articles of Confederation at the time who also went to the Constitutional Convention? Yeah, a bunch of them. Um, uh, Did anybody try to say, wait, 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 you can't do this? No, because the people, well, um, if they did, they didn't get it recorded. And what happened was, it was like, there's a delay in the, in the, the they're supposed to meet in middle May and they don't end up getting a quorum until late May of 1787. So there's like a 10 day hiatus. And during that time, the Virginia delegation is all there. Madison convenes that, and Washington's on that, and they bring in some other people from Pennsylvania, another guy called Governor Morris, and they say, we would like as the first item of the, of the convention to propose this plan, the so-called Virginia plan. That sets the radical agenda. So sometimes these people show up late, like the whole New England delegation is late because bad weather in New England, heavy rains, by the time they get there, the agenda is set, so nobody can really, you know, challenge it, uh, and they have to work within the framework of that agenda. One of the there's three groups, okay? The people like Washington, Hamilton, Madison, who they want to replace the Articles. They want radical change. There's a moderate group that want to revise the Articles, 
Some of them come from the current Congress. There's another group, they don't want any change at all. They boycott the convention. Who were the people who were fine with things the way they were? Patrick Henry and George Clinton in New York. Um, a lot of people. There's also people who don't care. I mean, it's not like they're strongly opposed to change. They think, look, my life is fine. You know, I, you know my farm is working okay. And I don't have any interest in all this. In fact, if you were going to really do a poll, that's the majority of American people. Um, but the fact that the real, the, the people who don't want any change boycott is a big factor. It, it, there's one exception. The New York delegation, because of Clinton, is in favor of doing nothing. Hamilton's in that. There's three people in it. The other two want to do nothing. Since it's one, one vote per state, that means Hamilton's vote will never count. So he's, you know. But um, by setting the agenda in a radical direction, they assure that that is going to have to be the basis for all subsequent conversations. However, because it's a one state, one vote system, they can get outvoted by the small states. There's more small states than big states. So Rhode Island is the equivalent of Virginia. And that sets the framework for what's got to be a series of compromises, which is what the Constitution is. It's a series of compromises. When, when ju jurisprudence uh, people and judges talk about the original intent of the framers, uh, we can talk more about this later, but, but nobody at the Constitutional Convention got what they wanted. In other words, if there, nobody got the intentions that they wanted. Walk, at Madison and Washington both walked away feeling it was a failure because it had failed on two big things. One, Madison and Washington both wanted there to be a federal veto of all state laws to clearly establish the shift from, from state to federal jurisdiction. That was dead on arrival. They also wanted a pop, uh, both houses of the legislature to be popularly elected rather than by state. They lost that. That's where the great compromise happens. In the Senate by state, in the, in the House by population. They think that's a defeat. Um, but the result as a, as a consequence is a series of compromises and the drawing of a line between what the federal government can do and what the states can do, but nobody knows where the line is. <laughs> Just, you know, Madison says, we've drawn a line. Yeah, well, but the people in South Carolina thinks the line's here, and the people in Pennsylvania think it's here, and the people in Massachusetts think it's here. So one of the beauties of the Constitution is to set up a framework in which there are no solutions. There are only arguments. And it's, it's an inherently living constitution. It can't be original intents because those intents, intentions occupy different positions in the argument. That's what you say. It's richly ironic that one of the few original intentions they all shared with his, was the opposition to any judicial doctrine of original intent. Yeah. That's another thing. They don't want this, their opinions to be cast in stone for subsequent generations. Uh, that and Jefferson's most lyrically about, lyrical about this, even though he's not officially one of the framers. He said it would be like asking somebody to wear the clothes uh, that he had as a child when he was a man, and uh, and so they they expect 
They, the, the, they want to be remembered, but they don't want to be embalmed at that moment. I want to ask you about a couple of the other characters. You, you mentioned um, uh, Robert Morris. Yeah. And uh, you say at, at one point, I want to talk, you talk a little bit more about him, because you say uh, within a few short months, Morris had made himself the most powerful figure in the American government, second only to Washington as a national leader. You also say Arthur Lee... Um, from Virginia, said yeah. the accumulation of offices in this man, the number of valuable appointments in his gift, the absolute control given him over all revenue officers, his money and his art, render him the most dangerous man to the liberty <laughs> of this country. Right. Lee is a paranoid. And uh, Lee also thinks Franklin is a secret agent of the, of the British. That uh, he, Lee has different people that he variously decides on. You know, he, he is, you know... Um, psychologically disturbed fellow. But Robert Morris is a perfect target because Morris is the wealthiest guy in America. He's making money during the war. And they say, aha, you know. Well, he's making money mostly by, by running pirate ships that capture British, British things. And he is also, you know, signing these notes for, Amer you know, for American goods from France and, and blah, 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 blah. Um, so, the truth is, Robert Morris's credit is worth more than the credit of the United States. If Robert Morris says, yes, you should take our note, they, down there in Jamaica, they take it. Whereas if it's U.S., they don't. Um, he is appointed superintendent of finance, and they call him the financier. And he's got an impossible job. He is supposed to try to raise money to pay off the debt, and, and the war's still going on when he comes in 1781, and take care of the army. And each request of each state for a tax levy is a request. It's not legally binding. That is, the states can say, and they all do say, sorry, we don't have any money, or we want to take care of our own people here. We don't want to take care of people from, like the army. We don't care about that. And so, like, for example, they promised the army a pension. It's never going to happen because the money's not there to pay it. And they, once again, Morris you know, writes a, a check for over $600,000 this time to try to give them some money. So, but Morris is, in the, Morris's financial plan for the government or the articles is a blueprint for everything that Alexander Hamilton is then going to do uh, almost 10 years later in the financial plan that he puts in place under Washington's administration. Everything that he does, the assumption of the debt, uh, the state debts, the, the paying off of the debt in full, the creation of a national bank, all those things are what, what uh, Morris wants to do earlier. But he, but he can't do it um, because the states remain uh, unwilling to pay. The other Morris you mentioned, Governor, Governor Morris, Morris, he is the one who came up with the phrase, we the people of the United States? Yes. If you want to have a trick question, like for Jeopardy or something, well, this would be too tricky. That Who wrote the Constitution? Like, we know who wrote the Declaration, right? But if you say the Constitution, they say, well, everybody wrote the Constitution. Yeah, 55 guys contributed to this. And um, the Committee on Style was created in late August of 1787 after they'd been arguing, and, and they'd put together different, you know, 17 different pieces. And they put this committee of style together. And Governor Morris was on the committee. So is Hamilton. So is Madison. They delegated the 
task of rewriting and putting all these things together, editing it, to Morris. And now, this guy Morris is a character, okay? This guy Morris is, uh, he's, he's in the Pennsylvania delegation, but he really is from New York. But he's working in Philadelphia at the time, so he's joining the Pennsylvania delegation. He's got a peg leg, he, an injury in childhood. He is exactly the same size as George Washington. The Houdon statue of Washington that currently exists in front of the Virginia State House is Houdon's head and Morris's torso. Because Houdon came over here to do the face mask for Washington, but then he went back and by that time, Morris is American ambassador or American minister in France, so he serves as the model. They fix up the peg leg, of course, but that's the torso. And he's a character. He's a real ladies' man, too. But he writes the Constitution, which, for the following reason, is perhaps one of the most significant and consequential editorial acts, because the draft he's working with begins as follows. We, the people of the states of Massachusetts, Connecticut, or Rhode Island, down the East Coast, all the way down to Georgia. We, the people of the states of. Morris just changes it. He doesn't talk to anybody. It's not like, you know, because, and this is the whole issue, of, right? Are we such a thing as we, the people? Well, no, not really. And we're creating a federal government before we're a people. We're creating a, a national government before we're a nation. And really the Constitution is what one wag called a roof without walls. And, but by stating we, we the people, and at the Virginia Convention, Patrick Henry calls attention and says, wait a minute, who says we the people? And, um, and uh, he smuggles, this, just as Jefferson smuggled some of the most radical ideas in, in, in American uh, letters and American history through the Continental Congress in 17, you know, uh, we the people of the United States. No, 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 no that's not the one I'm for. Uh, hold these truths to be self-evident, okay? That becomes the, you know, but here we're saying we're a single people. We're saying this document does not work on the states it works on the people. Well, that's what they've been arguing about and can't really agree on in terms of substantive issues, and he stylistically solves the problem himself. Where was Jefferson in all this? He's in Paris. Did, did he get involved in the debate by writing? Did he show well, his uh, support well, or remember, opposition? He's not, Madison writes him at the beginning of the convention, and he writes a wonderful long letter at the end of the convention. But they're... they're prohibited from corresponding about this. Now, he writes him once in the middle and violates the promise a little bit. But he's over there, and he is in the midst of, of talking with the French about their constitution and whether or not, and the French Revolution is just beginning. The, the terror hasn't happened yet. And he's meeting with Lafayette and other French philosophes, and he wants to help them draft a Declaration of Rights which will be essentially taking his values in the Declaration of Independence and applying them to France. So he's very interested in that. Jefferson's more interested in what becomes the Bill of Rights than he is in the Constitution. Jefferson lives in a world in which government usually can do nothing good and most of the time it does something bad. 
and therefore what you want is a set of rules that prevent government from doing things. He and Madison are not in the same place in 1787. Even though they're close friends and, and Madison worships the ground Jefferson walks on. Um, if Jefferson were present in Philadelphia in the summer of 87, unless Hamilton got hold of him and said, look, I want you to shut your mouth and don't say anything, which is hard to believe, um, he would have probably not signed the Constitution. He, he wanted a, a revision of the, of the Confederation, probably giving the government more power over foreign policy. But he didn't believe the federal government should have any power over domestic policy. Um, were Hamilton and Madison allies at this point? Yes. Very close. Isn't it interesting? Because you know that a few years later they're going to be bitter enemies. But remember, they're big buddies. They're the ones who write the Federalist Papers. Okay? It's Hamilton's idea, but he immediately recruits Madison. Um, they are... They are if you were going to look for, you know, the great, what, you know, the great partnership, we know it's going to end up being Madison and Jefferson. But originally, it's Madison and Hamilton. Um, in fact, when Madison breaks with him in 1790-91, Hamilton says, I don't understand. This guy was with me all the way. And all of a sudden, he's opposed to the bank. And, like, he doesn't understand. He does, Madison really does a 180. And, um, but uh, it's... Uh, and it's, if you talk about the Federalist Papers at all, like, it's regarded as the great deliberation on Republican government and the seedbed for original intent. Well, first of all, it's not much of a deliberation because they don't have time to deliberate. They're writing these things at breakneck speed. The printer is setting the press as they're scribbling at the last minute. It's like very, you know, over, it's an all-nighter kind of thing. Um, it's amazing they're as good as they are, and especially Hamilton's output. He writes like 51 of them, of the 85. Um, also, it's one side. It's not both sides of the debate. It's the Federalist side of the debate. It's not the Anti-Federalist side. But notice there's no such thing as the Anti-Federalist papers because the Anti-Federalists are all divided by state. And they can't see beyond their own state. And so they can't write about anything at a higher level. And it's, that's the beauty of the Federalist Papers. But the, it's, it seems to me that the Federalist Papers, which were originally written to influence the debate in New York, they don't come out until, they come out in time to be influential in Virginia. But what they become influential as, as something to attack by the people opposed to it, like, like Henry. Aha, now I see what you're talking about, and now this is the reason I oppose it. Um, but the Federalist Papers have probably been more influential on Supreme Court decisions in the 20 and 21st century 20, 20, than they were actually influential in the debates back in the late 18th century. What do you get today out of reading the Federalist Papers? There's some eloquent ones, like 51, where Madison talks about... Um, you know, if government were ruled by by angels, we wouldn't have. You know, it, it's and there's and Federalist Ten is famous. That's one about a large republic has inter, has checks and balances built in with interest groups that offset one another. Um, for most students of American political science, I think the the, the students who are assigned this feel bored. 
you have to sort of understand the context of the 18th century to appreciate it, and, and it's been studied most often by people who are political scientists who are using it as in part of a American government course. Um, but uh, I read it and I say, I don't know how these guys did this. Uh, it's it's and. It's almost impossible for you to know who wrote which ones. We now know, you know, all the scholarship been done and since the 50s, and so we can tell you. But if you sit down and try to read it, it's a single voice. Hard to do. And they didn't talk to each other about it. We also have the text of the Articles of the Confederation in the back of the book. Which is nobody it, knows, is, right? Yeah. Is there anything to be gained from reading that? Any uh, surprises? Yeah. I mean, you'll... Are you saying I shouldn't have put it in? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Maybe it's padding the book. Um, it is the official form of government for the United States during the first um, seven years of its existence. Um, and it allows you to understand how averse the American people were to the creation of any kind of central political authority that would resemble in any way the parliamentary government that they were rebelling against. Any form of executive power was perceived as monarchical. Any robust ex exercise of executive authority was taboo. And, and so it's, it's like, if you want to know the way we were, you know, the way we were, uh, that's the document. And people need to know this because most Americans say, well, you, you want an independence, or you declare independence in 76, right down, down the street here, and then you have this other convention right down the street here, and you declare nationhood, and that's it. Well, but there's a dead zone in the middle, a kind of black hole that we need to understand. And, un, and in order to understand, and once you understand that, then you know that American history during this time is going in a particular direction. It's going to the Europeanization of North America. That is, we're going to become like the EU, the American Union. It's, you know, but it's not a centralized government. And what's going to happen in the West, God knows how that's going to play out and whether Europe's going to come back in, the French and the, and the, um, the British might come back and claim new territory. So that it's a critical time and, it's, and the progress from 76 to 87 is not natural. All the forces in the 1780s are centrifugal. And it is this group of people, led by the four men I call the quartet, that changes the direction of American history. That's a big deal. And like, I don't want to simplify it, but that's the way it really happened. And, um, uh, and we are still not a nation when they create this federal government. Let's get that clear. They don't create a na nation. They create a national government, which will be an incubator in which some sort of national ethos will gradually form. You can see that ethos beginning to manifest itself after the War of 1812, but it doesn't become firmly established until after the Civil War. Read something back up a little bit from what you were saying, Robert. You have Robert Morris saying, uh, "I should tell you that a continuous continuance of the war is necessary until our confederation is more strongly knit, until a sense of the obligation to support it shall be more generally diffused among all the ranks of the American citizens." So he thought the longer the war that went on, the better. Isn't that interesting? See, he's saying, "What holds us together? The war. 
Once the war ends, what holds us together? Nothing. What had held us together before was membership in the British Empire. What held us together during the war was a commitment to leave the empire. After you leave the empire, there's nothing to hold us together. Um, and, and he wants that because that's the only way to get them to pay money for <laughs> you know, the states to, to ante up. And, and that's not going to happen. You also say that the term democracy remained an epithet until the third decade of the 19th century, so the 1820s or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, like if you look at a lot of textbooks, like they talk about Jefferson's party as a Democratic Republican Party. They didn't call themselves that. They called them the Republican Party. Democracy remained an epithet in the sense that it tended to mean mob rule, demagoguery. Um, and if you actually look at the Constitution with any clarity, it's a democratic base, yes, foundation, but it's a republic. A republic is different from a democracy. A republic is a form of government based on democratic values, but which refines and filters those values through several layers of deliberation. As Jefferson himself put it, the initial secretion of the people is usually impure. Okay? You don't want to trust the people. The people aren't trusted. These are the same people that, you know, they want to confiscate loyalist estates, even though that's illegal. Um, uh, they want to take Indian land. That's illegal, because but who cares? It's you know we can do this. Uh, they don't. They want an inflated currency because that's great because then we can pay off our debts with meaningless dollars. Um, that's the experience that Ham that Madison and Hamilton have of democracy in the 1780s. Did, did they see a parliamentary system as a reflection of that? I mean, is that why we don't have a parliamentary system here? Hmm, I haven't thought about that. No, I don't think so. Um, uh, in fact, the parliamentary system would be resistant to democratic popular election because it would be filtered through the congressional vo voters. The initial plank in the Virginia plan was for what they called the national government, for the national legislature, excuse me, to elect the president. If they had done that, we'd have a parliamentary system. But that doesn't work. There's also talk about direct election of the president, but there's interesting, they, they like that, but there's no way to implement it then. How do you have a direct election in this, in this spread out country without roads and without telegraph and all that kind of stuff? Um, I'm not sure how we got to this, but uh, that um, my point here is that a republic is different from a democracy. These people are not Democrats in the full sense of the term. They're kind of pre-Democrat but they believe that the republic serves not the popular interest, but the public interest. Res publica, things of the public. The public interest is the long-term interest of the people, which at any given time, most of the people don't understand. They think we should go to war with France. That's not a good idea. So we're going to have a system in place where we can pass the Jay Treaty, even though it's unpopular, and avoid a war with, with uh, England, let's say. And, uh, uh, and it predates the elevation of the common man as, as a hero. You know, that, goes, that comes into place with Jackson in the 20s and, and 30s. Uh, so there is an egalitarian ethos to the American Revolution 
but it, it's, it still hasn't reached its fruition in the 1780s. We still have this, these hierarchical assumptions, you know, like, and now hierarchical assumptions, but you got guys like both Robert Morris and Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's literally a bastard, comes out of nowhere. Morris is an immigrant from Liverpool, starts with nothing, okay? So it's, if it's an aristocracy, it's a natural aristocracy. It's not a, what Jefferson called a tinseled aristocracy. Um, but it's, it doesn't presume that the bulk of the people at any given time know their own self-interest. Is, is the country today more democratic now, or are those insulations still holding? I think it's more rhetorically democratic, but I think it's become plutocratic. I mean, I think that they would be aghast at the role that lobbyists play and the degree to which money controls um, elections. Uh, no, nobody that I know of uh, in the late 18th century would run for national office in the situation that currently exists in the United States. Uh, in fact, they would think that you were crazy. Uh, and in fact, you got to be crazy to run for office. It <laughs> really do. And. Um, uh, the qualification for office for them is someone who doesn't want it. Um, but uh, I think that the, the, there's more. Then it was perfectly fashionable to say, like Hamilton once did, the people, the people, sir, is a great beast. Nobody can say that now. Okay. You're not allowed to say that. Um, it's more rhetorically supportive of the notion that the people decide it will always be the right decision. Well, we're not going to have time to talk about all the things I'd like to ask you about, but I have to ask you about this one. John Dickinson mm. wrote something in, I think, 1776 that was called the Dickinson Draft. And you say, in truth, one of the most revealing documents of the revolutionary era, not in spite of, but because of its intellectual incoherence. Correct. What happens is... Right here in this town in 1776, in the summer, before the Declaration, they decided to form three committees. One to draft a statement that's going to be the Declaration. The other to draft an outline for a government of the United States if we declare independence. And the third to draft an outline for foreign policy. Jefferson does the first one. Adams does the second one. The third one. Dickinson does the second one. And it's a committee of 13 people, meaning it's, it, every colony is represented. And they try to put together a, a document for the, gov for the new government, and they cannot agree. They cannot agree about slavery. They cannot agree about proportional representation versus single state representation. And so what becomes of the, it, the Dickinson draft eventually becomes, after some, a lot of tweaking, the Articles of Confederation. But originally, more people wanted something a little bit more national. They can't get it. it, it it's not passable. Um, and, uh, but, it's a, but it's almost the first time when all the agenda items are going to hit us in the 19th century. Slavery, states' rights versus uh, uh, the federal rights, power of the courts. It's the first time we think about these. And if you think about what they were doing, it's like they think, okay, we'll just put this committee together. We'll solve all these problems in a couple of weeks in the summer of 76. Impossible. They were trying to do something impossible. And when the Constitution was finally done and unveiled to the public, and you say in here essentially the public was told, take it or leave it. That's what happens. How did yeah. the public react? 
there were there was a lot of reporters in each state. But, you know, there were 1,648 delegates in 12 states. Rhode Island boycotts the whole thing, and they boycott everything. And um, uh, there's a lot of newspaper coverage, but a little over 90% of the newspapers are Federalist. The press wants a federal government. There are some states, however, where, like New York, where the press is under the control of one party, in this case, the anti-federalist, the Clinton party, and so that, um, that prejudices it. There is a kind of national debate, but most people in the debate wanted to be able to say, we agree with this in the Constitution, we don't agree with that. We'd like to change that. They don't have that option. And they say, well, we would like to reconvene the convention and change this. They don't have that option. Who said they don't have that option? Madison. Madison's the one that gets that He in. could get away with just saying yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. Well, it becomes, you know, they enforce it because they say, if you try to pass amendments that are obligatory, we will say you have not approved the Constitution. So your vote will be counted as a no. So six states do amendments, but Madison says they are recommendations. They are not mandatory. And they say, okay, we can do that. Massachusetts does that. And, uh, I think Pennsylvania doesn't do it, but uh, uh, six states do it. And when you, when you want to figure out how the Bill of Rights gets created, Madison takes the 132 proposed amendments, puts them down on the table, and out of them he fashions the Bill of Rights. So Madison wrote the Bill of Rights? All by himself, single-handedly. So the trick is, you can say, Governor Morris wrote the, deck, wrote the Constitution and, and um, James Madison wrote the Bill of Rights. And you'd be right. We're about out of time. You have another book in the works? Don't even ask me this question at this time. I'm, so, um, I'm happy with what I've, I've done here. But my interest in Jay has been piked or spiked, and I think I might want to work on him. Uh, but right now, I'm going to rest on my laurels for a bit. Well, we've been speaking with Joseph Ellis. He is the author of this book, The Quartet. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.